Hello and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Mabel Romero, Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And this is the second of a series of three very special Ipsy Dixit episodes, produced in partnership with the University of Chicago Law Review Online and the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University. This symposium of essays was organized by the Academy for Justice. The contributors include leaders of criminal justice and health law centers and scholars of criminal legal systems, whose pieces discuss the intersection of criminal justice and the COVID-19 pandemic. The pieces are hosted by the University of Chicago Law Review Online, so go check them out. In this part two, devoted to COVID and policing, surveillance, and enforcement, I talk with Jennifer Oliva about her piece, Policing Opioid Use Disorder in a Pandemic, and Barry Friedman about his, Policing the Pandemic. Jennifer Oliva is an associate professor of law at Seton Hall Law, where she specializes in health law and policy, FDA law, drug policy, evidence, and complex litigation. Professor Friedman is professor of law at NYU and is the founding director of NYU's Policing Project, which works with all stakeholders to ensure that policing is transparent, equitable, and democratically accountable. Part three featuring William Crozier, Denise Araturk, Pam Metzger, and Gregory Guggenmos discussing COVID in the courts will be dropping tomorrow, December 19th. So enjoy. So Jen, I'm so excited to be able to have the chance to talk with you about policing opioid use disorder in a pandemic. And you know, this is a this is a really fascinating paper because I feel like we've been dealing with this drug use crisis and this war on drugs and everything for shoot like decades now. Um, so this is something that's really taken on some unfortunate and really uh, pernicious race and class implications, you know, just in the way that a lot of the statutes, you know, that are relevant have been drafted and even the way they've been, you know, affect people and have been implemented. Um, but this year, we're on track to see the highest number of preventable drug overdose, overdose deaths ever recorded in this country. Why do you think that's happening now? Well, yeah, let me thank you, Mabel, um, for the question. Um, that, that I just want to emphasize that that's not unique to opioids. It's going to be an incredibly unfortunate year for us in public health across the board. Uh, cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol is uh, incredible. Everything is skyrocketing. So I just want to emphasize the fact that that is most certainly not unique to opioids. It's just you know, the press likes to hang on to that narrative once you've created one that can really be a focus for them. But this is an across the board problem with mental health and um, mental health comorbid with substance use. So, oh, man, um, I'm Sorry to buy into that old narrative. I feel really bad. No, 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 why it's everything is because we have these things called syndemics. The medical anthropologist gave us this language during uh, HIV crisis, uh, intersecting health conditions. What we've seen from COVID, you don't need me to tell you this. Everyone here knows this is we've seen all the cracks and fissures right in our healthcare delivery system. We've seen people who are in poverty, people who don't have access to care, people who are underinsured or uninsured. People who have certain kinds of conditions have suffered egregiously, you know, relative to others. And of course, those folks are what poor and in communities that don't have good access to care. Uh, that can be in an urban setting or in a rural setting. And I know, I know Maybell you and, and I know uh, 
Professor Metzger here, I admire and respect, are writing about rural folks. And that's a real issue. And that's a huge, been a huge issue in the opioid context in particular. Um, but so these things work endemically. And that simply means one healthcare crisis exacerbates another and they together form a team and then make things worse and worse and worse. And so it was entirely predictable that in any kind of a healthcare crisis like this, those fissures and cracks would be exposed. And the folks at the bottom of the rung, which are you know, people who have diseases or disorders that are highly stigmatized, which is why, again, HIV is such a classic example here, but certainly folks who have any kind of use disorder or moral failing in these narratives uh, that weren't getting appropriate treatment in the first place uh, are going to uh, double or triply suffer in sort of an exponential way. And I would emphasize, maybe, as I said in this paper, uh, there are any number of people who are not treated for our most prevalent use disorder, which is alcohol, I'm not gonna let that go today. But um, in the opioid context, less than 10% of people receive evidence-based treatment or treatment that I, let me say this, that are recommended by the National Academies of Sciences have been recommended for decades uh, to treat the disorder. It's usually detox, um, you know, get, get right with um, your Lord um, kind of stuff, 12 steps uh, and not the actual efficacious gold standard medications that in the case of methadone have been proven effective um, since really the late 1940s, early 1950s. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've even seen that in my own involvement as a prosecutor when I was doing drug court and everything, this sort of get right with the Lord sort of a perspective, or, you know, if you put in enough effort and if you try really hard, then somehow things will resolve themselves magically or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I was really struck by a line in your essay that, you know, I'd like to hear just a little bit more about, um, you know, sort of, um, the implications of this. You say that pandemics follow fault lines of society. And I thought that that was incredibly evocative and I just wanted to hear more about that. Yeah, I would like to emphasize that as a quote from a far more wise individual than me. And so I, I did think it was important to put it in there. Those are not my, I wish those were my words, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, yeah, that's right. And it's, it's exactly to this point. Um, even when you talk, let's drill down an opioid use disorder nail and what your first comment was on sort of race, poverty, gender lines, and this kind of thing. Um, it's, it's always true, of course, in all sorts of pandemics that certain people are blamed, certain people are excluded. I, I often teach my public health students when they were saying like, oh, the race and gender uh, implications of COVID, and we go back to the bubonic plague uh, on the West Coast a really famous public health case called Juho versus Williamson, where the city of San Francisco decided to do all the bubonic plague outbreak mm-hmm. by shutting down only Chinatown and blaming the entire thing on Chinese immigrants. Well, what was happening at the exact same time, given that now we have these intersecting things? Well, we had an opioid crisis, the first and original one at the turn of the century, where iotrogenic addiction or use disorder, that means you got the medication from your doctor, was incredibly prevalent with a particular group of people. And those people were called white people. And those white people were middle-class and upper middle-class white women as a general rule. And they not only got the opioid tinctures, heroin tinctures, and injected uh, heroin and morphine from their uh, pharmacist, they actually have recipe books and stuff from this time where these women frequently used heroin and morphine and stuff in recipes and made tinctures to deal with child tuberculosis and coughs. And I mean, it was a routine, you know, off, on, off the counter uh, element in their homes, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't stigmatized. Uh, folks, that was treated as this like, oh my gosh, iotrogen, the doctors need to change and a very similar narrative now. Then Chinese immigrants came to the United States using the exact same drug, but they smoked opioid, right? They brought that to the United States. And at the same time, you see folks getting treated a particular way in a bubonic plague pandemic, 
Asians on the West Coast in San Francisco, California at the time. San Francisco enacted the very first punitive law directed at a particular drug to regulate it, and that was opium as smoked in the late 1800s. So at the exact same time, you're sort of seeing, so you can imagine again, at the exact same time, you often see this kind of race, stigma, very different narratives developing, both in the pandemic context or in an infectious disease context that sadly continuously intersects with use disorders and other sorts of uh, mental health conditions. So in your essay, you, you touch on two very, well, not very different, but two different um, ways of treating opioid, um, you know, drug use and the like. Um, methadone, and I hope I don't totally butcher this, buprenorphine. Um, so they've been treated a bit differently. Can you explain why and um, what's sort of the history behind these sorts of different scheduling designations and how does that deal with this um, disparate treatment between the two? Yeah, so the United States does something really unique, and I often say sometimes healthcare is such a good example of this, but people in the criminal justice system may hopefully agree with me. When you're the only person in the world that does something a certain way and you have the worst out health outcomes, perhaps it's you. Maybe it's not the rest of the world. So the United <laughs> States is the only country in the world that exclusively designates scheduling, or at least the final word on scheduling. It's a complex statute. The final word on scheduling, not to healthcare experts, but to a law enforcement agency called the Drug, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And this has been going on since we passed the Controlled Substance Act in 1970. Okay, the DEA came online in 1973. Prior to that, we, prior to that, that kind of stuff was in the Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement and everyone kind of knows that tale. So DEA says which drugs are good and which drugs are bad. And bad drugs go certain places on the schedule and good drugs don't get put on the schedule. And by bad, what they mean is a drug that has potential for use or abuse and very low medicinal value. So just to show you how, uh, how um, scientific the DEA is, is, since day one, the DEA has taken its least favorite drug on the schedule, marijuana or cannabis, and scheduled it in schedule one, which makes, they have said as a matter of course, and as a matter of US law, cannabis has no medicinal value and it's the highest potential of abuse of any drug on the schedule, which would now consider this fentanyl, mm -hmm. one of the most powerful drugs in the entire schedule is in schedule two, cocaine, schedule two, dentists still use it all the time, and Novocaine, et cetera. You can start to imagine when you look through the schedule, you see a story of race in the United States and drugs that have been racialized, no matter what their actual medicinal value is, right? And no matter what their real potential for abuse is or is not, you see the drugs racialized and that's the sort of story of the schedule and law enforcement concerns trumping the reality or the truth about public health and how these drugs actually work or don't work. So these two drugs, the, the FDA in all fairness has approved three drugs to treat mm -hmm. opioid use disorder. Uh, the third, we're not gonna talk about Vivitrol. It's not on the schedule because it, it's not, believed to be super efficacious. It doesn't actually deal with withdrawal and there's a bunch of problems with that. That's its own paper. But let's take methadone and buprenorphine. They're the most regulated drugs in the United States. Methadone is so despised by the DEA who has scheduled it in schedule two that it's not treated like any other schedule two drug. In fact, it's illegal to prescribe it. So you cannot actually have methadone prescribed to you even though it is the gold standard most efficacious drug to treat this huge problem that we have in the United States called opioid use disorder. You have to go to a, a, a methadone clinic, a special standalone facility that has been completely isolated by the, from the rest of the healthcare system. Um, you have to go in on a daily basis as a general rule, be subjected to random drug tests, wait in the line, show up in person, meet all this criteria, and then you're constantly surveilled and tested. Now you can imagine when you have a system like that that requires daily show-ups, 
routine drug tests in person, administered health screenings in person, counseling in person, all of these kinds of requirements. It's very police-like. Mm-hmm. How, how bad that system gets in a pandemic when you have to show up like that. Buphenorphine, on the other hand, which is, was, is a drug that came later in the 1980s and has always been associated with white folks like it because guess what? It's way more expensive, right? If you can't afford treatment, you're going to have to go and get methadone. 95% of people who take buphenorphine are white and live in the suburbs. That can be prescribed. It's a Schedule Three drug. It can be prescribed out of a doctor's office. But it's still the most heavily regulated Schedule Three drug and a bunch of special factors attend to it that make people not want to prescribe it. They've got to get a special DA registration. They've got to go through special training. They can only treat so many people. So these drugs have a really interesting long history and they are very unique on their schedules. So you were talking about the sort of work that methadone clinics do and that people need to show up and they check in and, you know, sometimes you see them waiting in line and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there must have been some sort of reforms have been initiated, um, you know, when it comes to administering these drugs in the face of the pandemic, I'd imagine. And, and what are they? And do you think that they're enough? Well, sorry, so I don't think there's enough because I wrote 12 in the back of the paper that were just like my beginning wish list. But here's what they basically did. Here's the DEA, HHS basically said, look, we're going to buy into telemedicine. That, that's basically what happened here. Then we're going to go with telemedicine and we're going to loosen up the fact these in-person initiations for buphenorphine and methadone where you have to go in and say, I've had the disease forever. I mean, it's right in the regulations. You have to have use disorder for a year before you can even go to an OP, OTP and get that in-person dose, right? So they have all of these requirements. They decided to loosen that up. We can initiate buphenorphine by telemedicine. Uh, we now allow more take-home use for methadone and buphenorphine. Those were great reforms, no doubt about it, but they refused to waive the in-person initiation for methadone, the more hated of the two drugs, right? right? That's a very racialized right, drug for hair and use disorder. And number two, they refuse to waive any of these other requirements that require people to come in person, right? They refuse to waive the random drug tests. They refuse to waive the, the sort of in-person counseling and these kinds of things. So that's a huge, that's an enormous problem. Above and beyond that, the practical reality is that a lot of people did not have the resources, the smartphone, the data you know, package, the computer to even engage in telehealth, even if they wanted to. And they certainly couldn't switch to buprenorphine. That's problematic from a toxicology perspective. I don't want to make my friends upset about that. But also they, they actually literally couldn't afford it and couldn't afford to um, have access to it. So I am happy that we're, we moved in the right direction. I'd say all those things should become permanent, but there should, we have to stop treating folks of color and poor people so dramatically differently when it comes to access to gold standard treatment than we treat the folks that can, in the suburbs, who are white, that can afford the drug, that can take it safely and not have to show up to the doctor and not be policed the same way. So that's kind of the thrust of the article is that even in this context, the people who are already most at risk are the ones that we continue to put at risk. And I'll just say a last thing, I'm on a grant with folks who actually do this stuff in Bougie Town, New Haven, Connecticut, right there by, you know, we've all heard of that little liberal arts school that's there. I have a friend who runs a a really large uh, methadone clinic. And what she said was when the pandemic started, folks would be getting picked up off the street and the New Haven police would walk up close to the door. Now, remind yourself at the time, this is March and April in the Northeast. Mm -hmm. People in hospitals didn't have N95 masks. They didn't have PPE. The folks in the methadone clinic absolutely had no access to this stuff right? They had no access to it. They would take individuals off the street and just shove, the police would shove them through the door and just leave. That's how folks 
that are in this environment are treated. The individuals inside didn't have any protection. These folks weren't coming in with any protection and the police would just come in and dump them in a methadone clinic. And this was you know, going on routinely. So we have a lot, we have a, a much further way to go on this. And the time is of the essence because the, the numbers are gonna be staggering at the end of 2020. You know, we're going into, you know, late fall, winter, and I'm, I'm terrified to see what's going to happen, frankly. So thank you so much for mentioning and, and finishing up on that point. Um, Barry, I'm so excited to chat with you about your um, paper, Policing the Pandemic, um, specifically. And I also submitted an essay for this series as well. So I was really excited reading over your essay yesterday and, you know, this morning um, in preparation for this event to know that, you know, we, we both start our essays, um, you know, looking at the fact that there's been this sort of messy, ad hoc, sort of decentralized um, response to the pandemic in this country, and that it's been a disaster. I think you describe it in your essay as a disaster. Um, I describe it in mine as us being seen as sort of a pariah state, um, you know, when it comes to how we're perceived globally. And, you know, I think that that includes the way that we've approached surveillance and enforcement, as you've described in your essay. And you talk about this company town model of contact tracing that we've seen to move forward with in this country, just sort of inertially, it feels like in some ways. So how does this differ from what other countries have been doing that seem to have been a lot more successful in managing the pandemic? Thanks, Maybell. You know, I actually want to start by pointing out that, you know, I read your essay and I thought, um, we came at things from very similar ways. Sometimes our essays seem to be nested with one another and sometimes they seem to be in tension a bit with one another, but, but really looking at the world and seeing uh, a, very, uh, a very troubling situation. I mean, there's no other way to think about it. And, and, it, and as you say, it's, it's just embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing to be in the United States right now when there's this incredible global crisis and ordinarily we would be a leader in that crisis. And instead we are, as you say, a pariah state. We can't go anywhere and we can't get it under control at home. And the reason, and I, I, I'm hoping we're going to circle back to this uh, uh, at the uh, end, is, is that we really had a complete failure of leadership at the top. And so we fragmented. As you point out, and we could talk more about this, there really is that same problem around surveillance generally in the United States and law enforcement generally in the United States. But in the absence of a federal model uh, or federal leadership, national leadership, kind of every jurisdiction has had to go it on their own. Sometimes states are in control. Sometimes states aren't and cities have to decide what they're doing on their own. Every, you know, town and hamlet and village in, in certain parts of the country. And then not only that, but, but because of a, a failure of leadership, individual institutions are making their decisions. I mean, my, my institutions made a lot of decisions. Uh, I'm sure your has. Uh, I'm sure the Piggly Wiggly and the Kroger and, you know, every single uh, uh, regulatory, I wouldn't have thought of a Piggly Wiggly as a regulatory body, but in this case it is, is making decisions about what are the rules, who has to wear masks, who's being subjected to surveillance, what kind of surveillance that is, uh, what are the enforcement mechanisms going to be, and that is, you know, that's led us to confusion, chaos, and in many, too many cases, absolute tragedy. Absolutely. And it seems like everyone else seemed, you know, I, I like the point that you make with regard to you sort of feeling this global embarrassment because I hear about these different modes of contact tracing that are being used in Asia and, um, you know, things that are much more centralized and actually having some sort of, you know, leadership, you know, I don't even remember quite what that's like having this centralized federal leadership anymore. Um, but I was really excited to see your debate about the procurement of services here. And that's something that I get really excited about because I, I write about that as well. 
So I'm so pleased to have this conversation with you today. And you examine how exactly we should look at different benefits and costs with regard to um, using public methods of surveillance versus um, leaving that to private control. So you know, can you explain to us what might be sort of the costs and benefits to each one of those? And if it were up to you, what would you do? Uh, I'll, you know, I'll just say as a prelude that, you know, particularly at the policing project that where I, I am the faculty director, that we focus a lot on benefit cost analysis around policing and public safety. And one of the great shocks to me as a scholar, when I first started to work into this area and was researching my book, Unwarranted, was that I uh, asked my RAs to go help me find some of the benefit cost analysis of policing generally. And, you know, after I'd sent them off to the library three or four times, I was willing to concede that they were right and that the literature just didn't exist. There's some literature without any doubt in this area on efficacy, on what works, but all too little attention to social costs. And particularly in a situation like we're in, we do care a lot about what works, but we also have to care about the social costs of getting there and figure out a way that we can achieve whatever we need to as a society while minimizing those costs. Here, in the case of COVID, we're between a rock and a hard place. And you know that's just the way it is with the pandemic. There's gonna be no happy outcome for people. I know, you know everyone, including in my family, is deeply impatient and frustrated with the limitations in their lives. That, you know, that's, that's what it's like. And the question is, how do we get to the best imaginable state of affairs? And to figure that out, uh, what we try to do in the essay is just compare, and I should, by the way, shout out Robin Tholan, who worked at the policing project with me and is now uh, clerking, but was really uh, a great collaborator on this project, was we tried to figure out, you know, what are the benefits and costs of two general models? One is doing this through traditional government and law enforcement, and the other is doing this through kind of a more balkanized private approach. And um, let's put off benefits for just a moment and talk about the cost. So, you know, we know the costs of traditional law enforcement. So it, if you're going, and in your essay, you talk about this actually quite profoundly, more profoundly than we do. Uh, but the, you know, if you're going to get a pandemic under control, then you're going to have to use some coercion with people. State's going to have to insert itself and you're going to have to keep track of people. You're going to have to engage in surveillance. So contract Contact tracing is a nice way of saying surveillance, but the fact of the matter is that's just something you're going to have to do if you're going to fight uh, the virus. And uh, the problem is that when you call the police into any fight like this and use, and the state more generally, and use coercion and uh, surveillance, all kinds of things are going to go bad, badly. I mean, certainly the privacy costs and, and individual security, but hugely uh, racially discriminatory effects. We saw that uh, here in New York a great deal. I was on more than one Zoom call in which people that worked at the policing project were just narrating what was going on outside their windows. And they were telling very different stories in uh, white neighborhoods and in communities of color, particularly black neighborhoods in terms of you know, the cops standing by in parks where people were congregating uh, in well-to-do and white neighborhoods and not intervening. Um, and then we all saw the, you know, the viral videos of the cops acting too aggressively, overly aggressively uh, in other, other communities. And so there's a raft of costs you're going to get by putting this, you know, putting, sending the state's players off the bench and, and into, into police a pandemic. On the other hand, when you turn to the private side, it's not all roses. And in fact, it's quite different. So, uh, 
you know, as soon as data is being collection, collected and in a lot of the sort of private approaches to the pandemic, there's a lot of data collection that we all know just how secure our data is when it's collected by private companies. Uh, there's discriminatory effects there too. They happen both at the data level. Uh, they happen at the level of um, even voluntary enforcement. So, you know, one of the one of the cool things about these contact tracing apps is they can kind of tell when you've been in touch with somebody uh, who had the virus and alert you and tell you that you need to go into quarantine, but that's going to not work as well for people that live at close quarters with one another. They're going to get a lot of false positives and be forced into quarantine. And that's going to happen more in poorer communities and therefore communities of color. Um, and then, you know, forget the tech side of this and just think about the Piggly Wiggly again, which is that every mom and pop store, every large commercial enterprise has a set of rules and some of that didn't go down too well with people of color walking in with masks on, uh, particularly in the early days. And it still doesn't go on, go too well today in terms of this incredible split between sort of the libertarians that don't care who they're going to infect and the uh, people who I, you know, will be blunt and say are responsible, uh, who have to put up with people who can't seem to follow the basic rules. And so costs everywhere, and that, I'm just going to segue to benefits and, and stop talking quite so much. But so the question becomes, where are we going to get the benefits? Mm-hmm. And there, Robin and I are unequivocal, which is that it was a fantasy to think that we were going to control a pandemic by leaving this in private hands and adopting a company town model. There, mm-hmm. For all of its harms, there is and only is one answer to a situation like that, and that is for the state to exert its authority and do what it can to bring things under control. So you mentioned in your essay, and a, a number of our other symposium participants today have mentioned this in their essays and even in just their commentary today, that trust in government appears to be at an all-time low right now for a multitude of reasons. And courts, of course, have been reluctant to step in and do anything to activists or anything like that. Um, and what you see is that governors oftentimes are left sort of with this hot potato that they're having to deal with, trying to figure out, okay, how exactly do I manage the pandemic while keeping, you know, people who might uh, uh, um, oppose some of these um, measures, you know, as happy as possible. Um, But, you know, sometimes you see governors even being met with almost violent opposition when they're trying to get the spread of the virus under control. It seems to me, and, you know, especially reading your essay, that legislatures have seemed to have taken a back seat when it comes to trying to figure out how to fight the pandemic. Why do you think that is and what should they be doing differently? Uh, so the why is interesting. And I'm going to move that to second and start with the what, because it's so critical. And here, again, we are unequivocal, which is um, you need the state to act. And the best way for the state to act is through a combination of expert agencies and representative bodies, which means legislatures. Uh, And when legislatures don't act and it's left to executive officials, we have all kinds of problems. uh, But one of them is that we've gotten this backlash that you've seen. Now we depend on executive officials. You know, there's, there's uh, lots of folks that you're talking to who teach constitutional law and adjacent topics. And it's pretty you know, basic learning that uh, executive officials are the ones that you turn to in emergencies because they can act quickly and they can act decisively. uh, And it's hard for legislative bodies to do that. But this is, and there's been a lot of an exercise of emergency power here, but there has been a real um, uh, challenge because this is not your ordinary emergency. This didn't show up one day and then, you know, we had to deal with it for the next two weeks and then it was done. 
This is a rolling emergency, and there's been ample time for legislative bodies to act, either to act in terms of setting down ground rules or to act in terms of specifically empowering executive officials and agencies to do the things that they need to do. And because legislative bodies have not done that, we've seen a lack of legitimacy. You know, I, some of your listeners might have, have heard or heard of Justice Alito's chat at the Federalist Society uh, the other day, which raised a lot of controversy. For my own part, I don't think judges on the left or the right ought to be at ACS or the Federalist Society. And I've, I've, I've made a point of saying that. I think it's all a little embarrassing. And he had a lot of very provocative things to say, many of which I disagree with. But he actually said one thing I completely agree with which is that we have left this in the hands of executive officials and we have a vacuum. I mean, uh, executive officials and we have a vacuum when it comes to legislative officials and it's unconscionable. Uh, And I'll tell you why it's happening uh, or part of the reason that it's happening uh, and something about the downside. So public choice theory will tell you why it's happening. It's because why be the one to get out in front of something when you can, you know, duck under a desk and hope that the trouble will pass by. Nobody's Mm going to reward you for taking action here uh, you know, making them wear masks or subjecting them to surveillance. Like, you know, you're not going to be anybody's hero. Uh, and so legislative, legislative bodies do what legislative bodies tend to do, which is hide if they don't know how to solve problems. But it's embarrassing. Uh, and it's not only embarrassing, it's in, unconscionable. They've left executive officials out there, hung them out there to dry. Uh, and again, there's been a real lack of legitimacy around what's happening, which is why we have these kind of protests about everything that strike me as, you know, a lot of it's just plain old common sense. Um, and, you know, one of the real uh, sad things here is, you know, so you might sort of push back at me and say, okay, but you know how those legislative bodies are, they're rotten. And if we actually make them act, we're going to end up with, you know, maybe nothing still, like they're going to, you know, balk at, at passing laws that need to be passed. Mm-hmm. You know, I have this, I hope there's a reckoning eventually, because I think there needs to be a reckoning. I frankly think there needs to be a reckoning in this country. And I'm the kind of person that tries to work with all stakeholders and find places of compromise, but there's just, there have to be some lines and there needs to be a reckoning. And I think people in legislative bodies, I'd like them to have to stand up and be counted. I'd like there to be accountability. I'd like to know who in government acted responsibly when it was time for responsible action. And we are all being deprived of that right now. And we are not going to get a chance to weigh in and say, you know, you failed us. You absolutely 100% failed us. Well, thank you so much. And I think that that's a really great point at which to sort of end our discussion. Thank you both Jen and Barry for chatting with me about policing, enforcement, and surveillance during the pandemic. You've both given me a lot to think about, and I'm sure our listeners too. So thank you.
We might as well quarantine together as be miserable all along. So if you come on over to my place, I promise you I will stay. And call this isolation a date Maybe enough time could go by Could be each other's mistake While we're waiting around to go under And I ain't getting no younger We might as well quarantine together And ride out the lightning and the thunder Might as well quarantine together Find a blanket to hide out under And if we find ourselves later on Hanging out and getting along We might as well quarantine together Just be miserable all along We had might as well quarantine together to be miserable all along. We had might as well quarantine together to be miserable. Let's see how that did.